You can be seated. All right, so you might be wondering why the bald wonder is not up here this morning. Um, as we culminate a book, as the book comes to its close, um, I got a phone call Friday night um, from our other teaching pastor. By the way, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, if I haven't met you yet. Um, but our other teaching pastor, um, he called in um, sick. He had a fever virus, but he went and got tested for COVID. It's negative, don't, so no worries with that. Um, flu was negative. He just got a fever virus. So with less than 48 hours, um, we, are going to, <laughs> we are going to look at the culmination of all of Scripture um, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. And so today's going to be a little bit like drinking out of a fire hydrant. So just buckle up and hold on and we'll make it through it, okay? So, Revelation, 13 weeks, 22 chapters, 404 verses, give or take 11,000 words, depending on what translation you use. One overarching theme of the Lamb being triumphant from cross to crown. And so in this last section of Revelation, I don't, we don't have time to go back and look at um, where all we've been. I would highly encourage you to go back and look on the website. All the sermons are listed there. But in the last section of Revelation, beginning in Revelation 17 and ending in Revelation 22, John goes back and he expands on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. So we saw two weeks ago in Revelation 17 through the first part of chapter 19, this fall of Babylon. And then the next week, last week we saw in Revelation 19, the second part of it and chapter 20, this final battle and this defeat of evil. And today in Revelation 21 and 22, we see this coming of this new Jerusalem. And each section explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. If you go back. So we saw that back in 17 and through the first part of 19, this fall of Babylon, the prostitute, right? And so this is a picture to John's first readers. This Babylon, this was a picture of Rome, Rome's great military, and they were an economic powerhouse. But it was more than that as well as John tied in these Old Testament words and these Old Testament images describing the downfall of Babylon and Tyre and Edom. And then John was also pointing to the fact that Rome was just a new manifestation of humanity's rebellion against the Lord. That's what Babylon is. It's our natural fallen human condition. It's our sin. Babylon is just simply a picture of that throughout history. And different Babylons will come and go until the Lord returns and restores his new kingdom. And you need to hang on to that because we're going to come back to that at the end, okay? And so last week we saw this final battle with Jesus riding in on this white horse. If you remember, his robe dipped in blood, but he hasn't fought yet. So why is there blood in this? But the, there's blood before the war even begins because it's his own blood. It's King Jesus' blood. And his weapon, if you remember, was the word of his mouth, the sword of his mouth. And this goes to show us that Armageddon wasn't, isn't a bloodbath, but it's rather a moment where Jesus flexes his justice and where Jesus flexes his power and he died for his enemies, but the enemies that still want to war against him and remain unrepentant will be held accountable to their ultimate demise in the lake of fire. Is what we looked at last week. And after this, we have this thousand year reign and then the Lord, the one true king, 
has this final triumphant battle where the dragon who is Satan and Babylon and all who choose to follow after him will be eternally banished, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. And that brings us to today. The inauguration of God's new kingdom. The king and his bride enter into the new heaven and the new earth. So, think with me for a second. Have you ever said or heard the line, it was only the thought of blank that kept me going? Have you ever used that or heard that said? Might be uh, thinking back to the Olympics, an interview with an Olympian. It was the, only the thought of me standing up here on this, this podium being awarded this medal that kept me going through all this rigorous training. It was only the thought, we see it in war movies, it's only the thought of returning to my girl or returning to my family that kept me fighting overseas. It was only the thought of laboring towards getting the dream job that I kept pressing in and going through these classes in college. And all the students still in college are like, that's not true, bro. But anyways, uh, fill in the blank with whatever you want it to be. But in Revelation 21 and 22, John is giving us a vision as believers to help us to keep going and to keep prodding along in this life. And so, that said, we're gonna, the first thing we're going to see is the restoration of a wicked creation, of a wrecked creation, I'm sorry. Verses 1 through 8 says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed Away, God, we can just stop right there, right? <laughs> and he said, who, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. And so finally we see heaven and earth are untied in a new creation, and God makes his dwelling place amongst his people. And so this is to fulfill, there's so much prophecy fulfilled in these last two chapters. This is to fulfill Isaiah 65 verse 17 where the prophet says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And this goes to show us time and time again throughout these last two chapters that Scripture is not a, a different books disconnected from each other. It is one grand narrative of redemption that flows from Genesis to Revelation. And so the earth is not destroyed and it's not done away with when we go off to some different heaven. And I don't know how you were taught about the new heaven and the new earth, but that was kind of the image that I was always taught. Well, this is going to burn up. This is going to be destroyed. And, and that's not what we see in Revelation. We see heaven coming down and restoring what is already broken. And so God renews rather than replaces. 
Sounds familiar, right? That's pretty much all of our story. Um, it's the story of redemption. You see this in verses 1 and verse 5. You see it in the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. Isaiah 65, 17. Isaiah 66, verse 22, just to name a few. And these visible and invisible worlds are untied in this war in heaven and on earth that we talked about last week gives way to this perpetual peace. And if you notice, the text says something interesting. It says the sea was no more. So what does that mean? Does God have beef with Shamu? Like what's going on with that? Why is there no more sea? Um, so the absence of the sea symbolizes the absence of chaos. To John's first readers, if you remember back when we went through Revelation chapter 13, this great beast rose up out of the sea. This is not disconnected from the overall narrative of Scripture either. You can go back and you can see in Daniel's apocalyptic vision, and I think it's Daniel chapter 7, um, where, you, where you see this great beast riding, rising out of the sea. And in Job 41, you also see this great sea creature called Leviathan, which symbolizes Satan in that Scripture coming up out of the sea. And last week we know that Satan has now been quarantined to the lake of fire for all eternity. And in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea which evil will be able to arise from and will infiltrate into this pure heaven and this pure earth. In other words, there is no more Satan, there is no more sin, and there is no more death. Praise God. And the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I want you to see the culmination of how Scripture is coming together in this moment. The bride of the Lamb arrives for her husband. And the overarching story of the Bible reaches its climax at this point. If you go back through the whole meta narrative of Scripture and you look at the, the, um, the covenants of old, you see it all come to fruition. All the nations are blessed and taken into the land that ultimately flows with milk and honey, the Abrahamic covenant. Here you, you see that we are preserved forever and there is no more destruction of living things, the Noahic covenant. The people are ushered out of something much more gripping and enslaving than the Egyptians, but rather Satan's sin and death, the Mosaic covenant. And then we're treasured as God's kingdom of priests and we are united with the true and better priestly king, Jesus, the Davidic covenant, who is the orchestrator of redemption and he now dwells with us forever. Do you see the magnitude of what's happening in this moment? And just in case you can't believe all that, it's like God can like, he's like just feeling it like, oh, here they go. This, is, this can't be true. He says, hey, John, you write this down. Write these things down because they're trustworthy and they're true. You can bank on it. God is not going to trash his work of creation. He's going to restore and he's going to renew it. In the words of Tim Mackey, I think he, he says it beautifully. He says, God is making all things new, not all new things. So he's about restoring. Where have we seen this before? Think back with me. We see it in the resurrected Jesus, right? When Jesus is resurrected, he's this risen Jesus. He's not a ghost but rather a physical person. He ate food and he drank wine with his followers. If you go back and read the Gospels, talking about the kingdom of God for a few weeks following his resurrection, complete with scars on his hands and scars in his feet. And they were talking and they were walking with the same Jesus they had walked with before. 
But the resurrected Jesus was also different, if you remember back. Some of the disciples didn't recognize Jesus, this resurrected Jesus at first. His, even though his body was physical, it was definitely different than ours. He appeared, he appeared and he disappeared from rooms. Do you remember that? Like he would just like phase through doors. Like that's not normal. <laughs> like the resurrected Jesus, he was the same Jesus, but he was also a different Jesus. And I think that's what John is getting at. And I believe about the new heavens and the new earth. And John was convinced that the future of humanity changed when Jesus walked out of that tomb on Easter morning. It was concurrently the same, but different. And so what was true of the risen King Jesus is what will be true for all of creation when heaven and earth are wedded together. And then he goes on and he says, it is done. It is done. And this confirms that this is the climax of John's vision and the climax of history itself. And God can say it is done. You know why he can say that? Because he's going to do it. He's going to carry it out. His words are trustworthy and true. And he, is, he goes on to say, I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. I inaugurated this thing and I'll end this thing. Because he is Lord over all. And then John's vision ends with this sweet promise for the believer. He says, those who overcome the seductions of Babylon, those who overcome the seductions of the world will be refreshed and inherit this new creation. In other words, those who find their, their rest and those who find their identity in the Lamb who has overcome the world will be able to enter in. But there is a stark warning for those who remain unrepentant and who are seduced by the world will join the beast in the fire, which is the second death. And the second death, we all experience a physical death, a first death. Believers and unbelievers share that. We all experience that. But what's unique for believers is that you don't experience a second death. You experience a second resurrection, but not a second death. Your first resurrection is when you place your faith in Christ and you are seated with Him and you are united with Christ. And you receive a second resurrection that we're talking about today, but unbelievers receive a second death, which is a spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. This is what led Matthew to pen these words in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And so there's this stark warning and there's this stark picture of this coming kingdom is not all inclusive. It is very exclusive for those who find their rest in Christ. And so now he shifts, John shifts the picture in verses 21, 22, uh, 1 to 22, I'm sorry, 21, 9 to 22, 5. And he's going to describe the kingdom that comes in two ways. And we're going to look at it in two pictures, a temple city and a new Eden. Let's look at this. Verse 9, and they came, <clears throat> then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare 
jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It was a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations on them and were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured, measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the seventh, uh, the seventh crystallite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth Christophrase, don't know if I said that right, we'll just roll with it. The eleventh jacent, the twelfth amnestice, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And here's where it gets sweet. Don't get lost in the details. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will never be no night there. They will bring into it their glory and their honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so John is now invited to see this woman, the bride of the Lamb. But in verse 10, what he actually sees is a city, this temple city. And this temple city is this symbolic merger of this new Jerusalem and this new temple, okay? And so the bride and the, the city, the bride is the city and the temple together represent the people of God who have been redeemed through Christ, okay? And so we see in this text the church triumphant. This is what it looks like for the church to be triumphant. And it helps us to better understand these verses when we read them with a dual perspective, okay? So Jerusalem, the bride, is us, the church. But Jerusalem, the bride, is also our home, which is to come. See, we're used to this way of thinking, right? So we use freight, like, just for instance, like if we say the line, our whole house is on our way to mom's for Christmas. We're used to talking that way. We don't mean that we've uprooted our brick and mortar homes and are taking them to mom's for Christmas. What we're saying is the whole house, the inhabitants of the home, have left the house, the location. Are you tracking with me? And so the description of these two places are a description of us as the church, but primarily they're a description of our home that is to come. And so the redeemed people of God come from heaven down to earth. And we see that in verses 2 and verse 10 of chapter 21. And therefore, our future home is not some, I don't, like in movies are cool, but movies have horrible theology. It's not like in the movies where our future home in heaven, where we're some glowing orb floating around in some ethereal realm. That's not how it works, okay? That's, not, that's bad theology. Don't buy into that. But we have a real resurrected body in a renewed creation, a real physical renewed body. And these separate realms of heaven and earth are finally united and this temple city shines bright like a jewel. 
It's like a kaleidoscope of grace and redemption. I remember in fifth grade, me and my dad went on my um, fifth grade trip to Washington, D.C. And if you live here in Tuscaloosa, that's, that's pretty much a part of your DNA here. Anybody been to Washington, D.C.? Just a yeah, majority, a lot of y'all. All right, so um, on our trip to Washington, D.C., we went to some museum and we saw this thing called the Hope Diamond. I don't know if you've ever seen this or heard about it. This Hope Diamond is 45 carats. I couldn't even afford a fourth of a carat for my wife, much less 45 carats. This thing was, it had light shining down on it. It was like this kaleidoscope of like beauty. I just remember it was like stunning in splendor. This temple city makes the Hope Diamond look like crushed gravel. It's a beautiful thing to come. And, and it says this Jerusalem temple, the Jerusalem temple in the Old Testament had a single entrance. The new temple in the new heaven and the new earth has four entrances on the north, south, the east and the west for, for all the four corners of the world to enter in. Isaiah 60, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11 Ezekiel 48, you can find that prophecy there. And in the ancient world, benefactors often had their names inscribed on buildings and public works in which they funded. And we still have this today with schools and libraries and universities, right? According to Revelation 21, verse 14, the temple, has, the temple city has 12 foundations inscribed with the names of the apostles who laid them, giving a hint back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you see how scripture is culminating together in this moment? And then we get these symbolic measurements. Why do I say they're symbolic You'll follow with me right here. They're symbolic of Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43 and Zechariah chapter 2. So 12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles if you see your footnote in the footnote in Scripture. So the city's 1,400 miles in length and it's 1,400 miles in width and it's shaped like a square, the Scriptures say. And so to John's original readers, this city would have been about the size of the world as they knew it then. The known world. It would have been about the size of the known world. For us today, that kind of translates as a little bit larger than India. But here's what's interesting. The scriptures also say it goes up that high. So it's also 1,400 miles tall. Just to give you perspective, Mount Everest is six miles tall. So if there was a skyscraper, and we were generous, and we gave this skyscraper 12-foot floors, this skyscraper would be over 600,000 stories tall. So this is why I say the numbers are symbolic. But in other words, and I think this is the crux of what he's getting at. This is a massive city because it contains all the redeemed people of God. And the once persecuted Christians on this world are now protected within its walls who are reinforced by angelic watchmen at every gate. And here is the beauty, lest you get lost in the details. This cube city of glory echoes the most holy place in the temple. If you think back to the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, we talk about this in here regularly. Where this is where God met with his people. In the past, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They would tie a rope around them with bells because if they went in and they had sin on them, the Lord would strike them dead in that moment. They had to drag them out. And so once a year, he could only enter in once a year through the shedding of blood. But we know in Scripture, in the Gospels, when Christ was crucified, the, the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
And then Jesus is, through the blood of Jesus, it's opened a way and we get to follow him confidently based on Hebrews chapter 10. And we get to, not because of how awesome we are, but because of how great God is, we get to follow him confidently into this sacred space in the presence of God. This is huge. In this temple, there is no temple because this, this temple city, there is no temple because the city itself is the temple. See, the temple was a symbol of God's presence, but here that symbol has given way to reality. God came to us when Jesus entered amniotic fluid through a virgin woman in the form of a squibbling, dribbling baby boy. And this is why God described, Jesus described himself as the temple in John chapter 2. God is present with us in part as believers right now by the presence of his indwelling spirit, which is why the church is described in Ephesians chapter 2 as the temple. But here in the temple city, God will live among his people forever and ever and his glory will be unveiled. So there's no need for sun nor moon. And it reminds me of Psalm chapter 30, where it says, though morning may tarry through the night, what comes in the morning? Joy. This moment of perpetual joy for all eternity. And see, we see in the Old Testament, when the tabernacle and Solomon's temple were inaugurated, the glory of God descended. But when the glory of God descended, the priest, they couldn't stay. They would be struck dead if they were around his presence. They had to evacuate. Uh, Exodus uh, chapter 40 and 1 Kings 8 tell us that. But the temple city here is filled with the glory of the divine. And guess what? We don't have to leave. We don't have to go anywhere. We can be there in his presence. We will remain in his presence. And it got me thinking of Moses in Exodus 33. Moses is up on the mountain with God, uh, interceding for his people down below. And he's like... God, just let me see your presence. Let me just see your face. He's like, Moses, you can't see my face and live. You'll die if you see my face. And he says, I'll tell you what, Moses, go over to the cleft of that rock. And when I pass by, you'll get a glimpse of my glory from my back. And the text goes on in Exodus. And Moses comes down from the hill and all the Israelites see him. And he looks like a human glowworm, right? His face is radiant from shining from the glory of God. We just weren't made for it. But here in the new, the new kingdom to come, that's just reality. It's just reality. Does that excite you, believer? If that don't excite you, I don't know what will, man. And then verse 27 says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. That, might, that kind of sounds like a warning, but it's actually a promise in and of itself. It's... It, our, the, our pristine sanctuary that is to come will never be tainted by any sin ever. There's this place I like to, I like to go, I, I used to go to in high school all the time, and we just took some of the youth guys out there camping. It's this cave out at Blue Creek. Me and my friends used to camp there in high school. It was a perfect spot where the rock overhangs and it's got a little place for a fire pit. We, we camped out there all the time. And when we used to go back out there in high school, the rock was pristine. There was no trash, nothing around. It was just a nice little, like a sanctuary out there for me, an outdoor sanctuary. But as time went on and more and more people found, about, about, found out about my little sanctuary out there, so came spray paint 
cans. And so came graffiti on the rocks. So came profanity spray painted on the rocks. So now when we take the youth guys out there, we're like, hey, look at the water. Don't look at the rocks. You don't need to read that, you know? And it's just like my earthly paradise was unraveled. And this happens to our paradises all across the board. Our beaches give way to hurricanes. Our national parks give way to wildfires. Our football stadiums and our little leagues fields give way to viruses. Our paradises are ruined by sin, but not in the temple city to come. And then John shifts from the temple city to this restored new Eden. Verses 20, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. And they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light, nor lamp, nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so John shifts now to this picture of this restored Eden, where all of this started. Think back. This is, it all started at Eden, and now it all culminates in a new Eden. And then we see this picture of this river flowing through the garden, just like a river flowed through the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 2, verse 10. And this river feeds a tree, and this tree is this tree of life that stood at the center of Eden. We see that in Genesis 2, verse 9. And the water of life feeds the tree of life, and the tree not only sustains life, but it what? It also restores life. In other words, it constantly gives life to God's people. But the key thing here is where it all flows from. Follow the text. That is this life-giving river that, that feeds, that flows through the garden, that feeds this tree, that feeds humanity for all eternity, flows where? It flows directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This means that it is ultimately the lamb who gives life. And the fact that Jesus is described as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, indicates that life comes through his death. Are you following? Believers do not become immortal in the sense that we become this self-sustaining life in eternity. That's not how it works. No, we live forever and ever because we are forever given life through the death of Jesus. And so rest assured that from creation to consummation, forever and ever and ever and ever, it is all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It currently is about Jesus and it will forever be about Jesus. And if you have a problem with that, you're going to hate eternity. And so and in Genesis 3.24, this is the richness of the gospel. In Genesis 3.24, angels blocked the entrance back into Eden. And our first parents couldn't enter back into the garden because they were sinful and they were unholy. And unholy cannot be in the presence of the sacred. The sacred presence of God. But now in Revelation 22.4, through the blood of the Lamb, the once unholy are made holy and are welcomed back into the sacred presence of God for all eternity. That's just good stuff, man. 
In verse four, this says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Grace upon grace upon grace. And so my question for you this morning, tying it back to that first thing that we mentioned, talking about Babylon. Where do you belong? Where do you belong? I want you to think through that. Where do you see yourself belonging? And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of where we are and what's to come. And and this is where the section of Scripture ties back into Revelation 17. See, John is writing this letter to Christians facing seductions and threats of the Roman Empire, their Babylon. And to understand this, we need to see the parallels of Revelation 17, 1 through 3, to Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. Oh, you already got it up there. Awesome. And so if you follow with me through these two, two sections of Scripture... So they both start off, the one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you. And then the ones who follow after Babylon, who follow after the world, who follow after their own greatness, there will be judgment of the great prostitute. For those who are in Christ, the bride of the the wife of the lamb. For those who follow after the prostitute, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. For those who are in Christ, he carried me away into the spirit, into a great high mountain. Do you see the difference? One goes into desolation. One goes into uh, paradise. And so then it goes and says, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet breast that was full of blasphemous names. And I had seven heads and ten horns. And then for the believer and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. But within these two texts, John is contrasting not just these two places, but also these two city women. Throw this next thing up there, Cole. And so Babylon, the great prostitute and Jerusalem, the bride. So we have an adulterous prostitute versus a pure bride. We have splendor from exploitation versus splendor from God's glory, seducing and corrupting the nations versus we are a light to the nations. Either we're full of abominations and filth or we're impurity and deceit are excluded from us in Christ. We're either in the wine that intoxicates the nations or in Christ with the water of life and the tree of life for the healing of the nations. People, God's people are called to come out of Babylon and in the new Jerusalem, God's people are called to enter through her gates. And so many of John's original readers found their identity in the glory and in the wealth of Rome. If you know your history, you know this to be true. The gospel plea to turn to Jesus and flee from Rome's idolatry and their immorality was a monumental deal. This was a big deal to leave this on the left. This was a big deal to get out of that in that culture. And even for us today. And it's, and it's meant, it meant the loss of position. It meant the loss of wealth. It meant the loss of, of identity or, 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 or cultural identity. It meant the loss of, un, it meant the, the certainty, an uncertain future for you. And for Jewish Christians, it meant rejection by the Jewish community. And that, because their families would disassociate themselves with, with them. And then they would be left homeless and with nothing. And this is why we see in the early church in Acts chapter 2, we see people selling their possessions and giving to each other as any had need. Because they didn't have family to go back to. They'd been disowned. And so John here is presenting an alternative city to his readers that the city of Rome from the, uh, from the city of Rome, that present Babylon. And the Romans love to praise their power. The Romans love to praise their wealth. The Romans love to praise their, sec- their immoral sexuality. They love to praise their injustices. They love to praise their arrogance. 
Sounds familiar, right? But here John offers a different vision. He's offering another place to belong. He's offering another focus. He's offering another home. When we leave Babylon, we need somewhere to go to. And that's what John is talking about. And so lest we think in 2020 that we are disassociated from Rome and the, prostit- the Babylon, the prostitute, it's very applicable for us today. We're prone to follow after the great prostitutes of power, the prostitute of prestige, of politics, of pride, the, pr- the, pride, the prostitute of corporate ladder for personal gain, uh, the pride of envy, the, 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 the prostitute of man's approval, of lust, of laziness. The list goes on and on and on, whatever it is. And culture praises these things. All you got to do is turn on the radio, man. Listen to the music that's on the radio and, and how we, we celebrate we celebrate these things. And to, and to move into this new Jerusalem and what John is pushing us to and inviting us into, it's countercultural. It's completely countercultural. It includes the rejection of friends and of peers, it includes the rejection of invites, it includes the rejection into parties. It, it, to flee from these things are a monumental deal. And I think that's at the heart of what John is trying to get us to see. And the question still remains, where is your home? Is home Babylon the prostitute or is home Jerusalem the bride? And the same plea for them is the same plea for us today out of Revelation 18.4. Come out of her. Come out. And John offers another family to belong to. In Revelation chapter 2 verse chapter 11 verse 2, he says that you can belong to this holy city, which he's referring to the church on earth, those belonging to Jesus, us as believers. And like Jerusalem to come, she's holy, but unlike Jerusalem to come, she's not glorious, but one day she will be. In history, it's Babylon that looks glorious for all that she offers in the here and now. But John shows us the future of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, their ultimate demise. And he, then he shows us the future of the church in verses chapters 21 and 22. And so to close this out, I want to do six parting thoughts from Revelation. Um, verses six, 6 through 20. Look with me. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard them and when I saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outsiders are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who, who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bride and morning star. And the spirit of the bride say, come and let all the one... 
who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So six parting thoughts that will be up here on the screen. One, believer and unbeliever as well. These words are trustworthy and true. You can bank on them. You can take them to the bank. Why? Why can you rest in them? Because this revelation comes from God himself through John. It is a, it is a firsthand apostolic report from God to John to us. Number two. We are to keep these words. What does this involve? In one sense, it involves everything that's been mentioned. All, through, all, the, all the scriptures. We are to keep the words of the scriptures. In a sense, all that's been said, but also more so than that, uh, John encounters this angel when he falls down and he worships him. And the angel's like, hey, whoa, bro, don't worship me. Worship God. And so he's saying... And so to keep the words are to worship God with our lives, to, to give our lives away and to worship him, the one who brought us out of Babylon, believer, and into the land of the living. Worship him with all that you are. Number three, we are to read these words. These words are not for some distant, far off future. We are to read these words. We are to share these words. We are to remind each other of these words regularly and often. Number four, these words are gospel. We are to proclaim them. We, we, they are for living for them. For in them is living water for the dying. Revelation 22 verse 17. Come, let the one who is thirsty come. The invite is open for everyone. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. And number five, these words are final. The canon of scripture is, is closed with these words. To add to John's words, is to add to scripture. You need no extra biblical revelation from an angel out of the 1800s that makes temples in Salt Lake City, Utah. You don't need that, man. John said it's, it's, it's done. It's, it's over. These words are final. You cannot say that you find hope in what John says about what's to come in Christ and at the same time deny what he says about adding to the canon. If you deny the latter, you deny the former. And number six, I am coming soon. Ben, come on back up. What a fitting end. What a fitting end. I am coming soon. How do we respond to that statement? Do we respond with an enthusiastic amen? Do we get excited? Does this text excite you? Do we long for Christ's return, church? Or are our longing somewhere else? Will we prefer His return to be postponed? If it's the latter, then we may need to turn to Jesus and come out of Babylon. And so, unbeliever, if the Spirit is prompting you, I plead with you to turn to Christ, who takes broken things, who takes ugly things, and who takes unholy things and makes them pure and beautiful and cherished. Today could be the day of salvation. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Enter into the land of the living today. Do not tarry. And believer, if this text doesn't get you stoked, then I have no idea what will. 
Um, <laughs> sin, death, and Satan will ultimately be crushed forever and ever, never to curse you again. You will get to be in His presence forever and ever. And just like our first parents pre-fall in Eden, you will be able to walk face to face with the God of the universe in the cool of the day. Good grief, man. I have so much I want to talk to that dude about, for real. Um, man, I'm so excited about this. And this should cause you to worship greatly in the already of what's true, but yet what's to come. And to end this bad boy out, and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's worship.